This is Cultural Debris with host Alan Cornett. Welcome back to Cultural Debris. I hope you're having a blessed Advent and a Merry Christmas season. This is the last episode for the year, but I hope to have more interviews to share in 2021. We had a brief blast of warmer air last week, which allowed me to get my allium bulbs in the ground. I am attempting to ignore the email pleas from bulb companies assuring me there is still time to buy and plant yet more bulbs. A hearty thank you to those who have left ratings and reviews for the podcast. If you have not yet done so, a five-star rating and a positive review would be a most appreciated Christmas gift. My latest book acquisition was Athanasius on the Incarnation, with an introduction by C.S. Lewis. The book is in print and paperback, but the book buyer in me argued against the easy route. A quick check on bookfinder.com, long a favorite website, turned up not only a hardcover, but a first edition with the Lewis introduction for about the same price as the new paperback. I think such editions give one's library more interest, and I derive more pleasure from them. It takes just a little online search work and some practice with keywords to turn such things up. Christmas time is upon us, and I pray that in this unpleasant year, your Yuletide may be a merry one. Please bear with me as I share this poem that reflects the season, The Cultivation of Christmas Trees, by T.S. Eliot. There are several attitudes towards Christmas, some of which we may disregard, the social, the torpid, the patently commercial, the rowdy, the pubs being open till midnight, and the childish, which is not that of the child, for whom the candle is a star, and the gilded angel spreading its wings at the summit of the tree is not only a decoration, but an angel. The child wonders at the Christmas tree. Let him continue in the spirit of wonder at the feast, as an event not accepted as a pretext, so that the glittering rapture, the amazement of the first remembered Christmas tree, so that the surprises, delight, and new possessions, each one with its peculiar and exciting smell, the expectation of the goose or turkey, and the expected awe on its appearance, so that the reverence and the gaiety may not be forgotten in later experience, in the bored habituation, the fatigue, the tedium, the awareness of death, the consciousness of failure, or in the piety of the convert, which may be tainted with a self-conceit displeasing to God and disrespectful to children. And here I remember also with gratitude St. Lucy, her carol, and her crown of fire, so that before the end, the 80th Christmas, by 80th meaning whichever is last, the accumulated memories of annual emotion may be concentrated into a great joy, which shall be also a great fear, as on the occasion when fear came upon every soul, because the beginning shall remind us of the end and the first coming of the second coming. I will link in show notes an interesting article from the Paris Review on the origin of this poem and the edition that Faber originally produced of it. This episode of Cultural Debris is about art, the appreciation of it, and also the acquisition of it. It has long been my belief that art is not something simply to be viewed in a sterile museum, 
Rather, art is something that ought to be part of one's daily life, something one lives with and that dwells in our homes. I have an appreciation particularly of Indian Mughal art and have acquired several books on the subject. I've also had the good fortune of picking up a couple of small original pieces on a trip to India. Other artists I particularly appreciate are Sargent, Soroya, and Baldini, all from around the turn of the last century, although the odds of me ever owning an original by one of those masters is very slim. Somewhat more accessible are Victorian and Edwardian caricatures, most famously portrayed in Vanity Fair or Spy Prints. I recently acquired a likely original Edwardian inkwash caricature of a well-dressed man who was prepared for a day at the track. A seller I know on eBay deals in such things from time to time. The piece is original, but also quite affordable. Art critic William Newton joins me in this episode to discuss how to approach art, how to learn about it, appreciate it, and also acquire it, how to not let it be so intimidating. William is an attorney, a graduate of Notre Dame Law School, but also a graduate of Sotheby's Institute of Art in London. He has written and blogged about art for over two decades and has recently turned his writing attention to the online magazine The Federalist, where you can find his art-themed views and reviews. William and I are of a mind about much with art, but his expertise and insight far, far outstrips mine. You'll also find that William does not shrink back from expressing his opinion. William Newton, welcome to Cultural Debris. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to uh, to join you. I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, do you have uh, family or personal Christmas traditions that you that you enjoy this time of year? Well, um, I my mom was from uh, Barcelona, Spain, um, and there are certain things that one does in Catalonia, of which Barcelona is the capital, that are a little bit different than what we do in the States. Um, and one of them is, uh, as as people are becoming more familiar with, is the uh, the pooping Yule log. Um. Uh, yes. I, I actually, <laughs> as you know, my daughter spent a year in Catalonia and uh, we became familiar with the uh, with the poop log. Yes. And, uh, and, and my, my, I, I knew it had, it had sort of reached its, its, uh, its cultural peak in this country a couple of years ago when, uh, Kate McKinnon was on, uh, from SNL was on the, uh, the late show and, um, was talking about how she had adopted, um, this tradition. <laughs> and, and for readers who don't know, uh, or readers, excuse me, listeners who don't know, um, it is it, essentially what you do is at the beginning of, of, of Advent, at the beginning of the, the sort of lead up to, to Christmas, you, you take a log, um, preferably from the woods, although nowadays most people just buy them in a market, um, usually has a face painted on one end. Sometimes it has a jaunty hat and some feet. Um, and you bring it into the house and you keep it warm, put a blanket over it. Um, you put food out for it at night, some leftovers and things before it goes to bed. Um, and then in the morning, of course, it's magically disappeared and you are essentially fattening up the log. And when you get to Christmas, 
then you go sing a very special song uh, for this purpose where you uncover the log and you beat it with sticks so that it will release, shall we say, um, what it's been eating, which have magically been turned into uh, candy and presents and things like that. So my my mother, we did not do this growing up because my although we were aware of it, my mother always um, said that that was you know a very sort of gauche thing to do. Um, <laughs> but but now that we are older, my siblings and I all love this. And this year will be the first year with my um, my nephew who is currently uh, two, going on three that he will understand it. And so we're going to make him do this. <laughs> I, you know, I, I feel like that, that the, the poop log is a far superior tradition to say like elf on the shelf, you know, that that's, it's yeah. just, a, it's a, it's a more authentic sort of visceral uh, tradition than, than having this annoying little elf floating around. If, if you will, it is a paleo pinata. <laughs> because it is it is of the roughest materials barely decorated come in from you know comes comes in from out of the countryside if you will um and it 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 has the same result you get candies and little matchbox cars and things so it's um yeah it's 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 something that that this year in particular we're we're looking forward to initiating my nephew into this my daughter sent us uh poop logs but she she had bought uh, purchased some at at a market uh in in Catalonia and shipped them to us but uh because they were kind of rough wood and i guess had bark on them the US customs was very offended by this apparently and so they seized our poop logs and <laughs> uh and and we were denied uh the, the actual poop logs last christmas we ended up uh, in she somehow acquired a a like a crocheted poop log like ah. it's almost shaped so so we have that but our um, somewhere uh, somewhere in DC probably in a in a warehouse near the uh, the the Ark of the Covenant is uh, <laughs> is a box with with seized poop logs in it <laughs> that could not be allowed could not be allowed the country so so oh. you know. Uh, I guess uh, I, I I guess we could say that the U.S. customs are are party poopers, but uh, <laughs> but we we do we I, I'm sure that we uh, that we're going to enjoy our poop log uh, this year. So yeah. uh, so you are in in Washington D.C. the the lovely capital, and you are an attorney. But we're but we're interested in the fact that you are also an art critic. And so, how yep. did an how did an attorney become an expert <laughs> in art? Well, um, as as any of your listeners know who who have gone to to law school, um, particularly if you you know if you went either right after college or, or fairly soon after college, um, it's kind of a drag. Um, and uh, I had been fortunate enough that I was able to spend my entire second year of law school in London because my, my law school uh, has, a, has a campus there. And 
I enjoyed it very much, and I and I wanted to see if there was a way that I could um, move back to London for at least for a while. And I managed to get into a new program that had been started um, the year before I applied at Sotheby's, which is one of the two largest auction houses in the world. Um, the other one being Christie's. Um, they're sort of the Coke and Pepsi of the art world, as I always say. And um, Sotheby's has an educational component. And you can go study all kinds of things there. Uh, the program is is accredited through the University of Manchester, which which I believe is the largest. I think it's like the Penn State of of the UK. It's it's the largest uh, state school in in, in the UK. Um, but you don't actually have to go to Manchester. You can be wherever you are. Um, and so I got to uh, study a for a master's in in art business and and focused on all aspects of um, the business side of, of the art world from legal matters to marketing to um, understanding different aspects of um, uh, sort of emerging markets, markets where um, the the country that you're looking at is more of a buyer versus a seller or vice versa. Um, all, all different kinds of things related to um, how you would go about doing business in the art world. Um, this was a nice break for me um, from from having been in school for such a long time. It was being in school, but it was also doing something that was related to what I've always done in my leisure time. Because ever since I was very small, um, my siblings and I would love to look at our, our parents' um, art books, uh, sculpture and painting and, and that sort of thing. We would play a game called uh, Pick Your Favorite on Every Page, where you would open you know, randomly to a page in, in some big coffee table art book and say, I like this painting or I like this sculpture better than that one. And here's why. Right. And have these sort of discussions, which is an incredibly nerdy thing to do. But, <laughs> well, true. Um, true. I, I will agree with you that that's true. But that that actually sounds like fun, though. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, again, it wasn't um, it, it was just something that we naturally took to. It wasn't it wasn't something that that our parents forced us to sit down and say, now we're going to look at this, you know, book full of, of, uh, Monet's or something like that. We would, we would just simply look at it and make decisions for ourselves and have debate and, 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 uh, sort of learn what the other person's tastes were and so on. Um, and then as I got older, uh, I became more interested in going to museums and reading more about art and, and so on. So for the most part, I was, I was essentially a self-taught amateur for most of my life. Um, but it was interesting that I ended up getting into the Sotheby's program because I had only ever had, other than high school, I had only ever had one art history class in my, in my life. And that was team taught, uh, in my undergrad by an art history professor and a sort of straightforward history professor. And it was on the Italian Renaissance. And it was one of those second semester senior year classes where, you know, you're, you're finishing out your credits and you need to have some humanities courses. So I remember the first day of class, um, the professor, as is often the case in art history classes, would put slides up uh, on the screen and ask people if they knew what they were. And as they got progressively more obscure, let's say, for a an intro to art history type class, um, I was the only one raising my hand to answer the questions. And so after class, the professor asked to speak to me. 
and said, are you an art history major? Why have I not met you before? And I said, no, I'm an international politics and international law major. I'm, I'm just taking this because I love art. And she said, well, you're intimidating the other students. So <laughs> you need to stop. And I don't know what I'm going to do with you. So what ended up happening was um, everyone else had to do at the end of the course, a sort of standard fill in the answer or pick the right answer type thing. I had to do a research paper um, because I was so far, again, self-taught beyond the other people that she just didn't think it was fair. And I ended up doing a, a, a very lengthy research paper on um, sort of political symbolism in a series of frescoes that Raphael did in the Loge in the Vatican and how they were um, sort of supposed to <sighs> glorify the the Medici, if you will, um, since since the Pope at the time, Leo X, was a, a, a was a Medici Pope. And it ended up several years later when I was interested in the Sotheby's program, they said, well, but you don't really have an art history background. Have you ever written anything before? And I said, oh, yes, I wrote something several years ago. Let me dig it out. And so I dug it out and I sent it to them. And they said, how are you not an art history major? <laughs> because <laughs> you missed your I, calling. Well, in a sense, <laughs> yes. Um, I, I, I think if I could go back in a time machine to, to you know, myself at, say, 17 when I was deciding which colleges to pick and thinking about going to law school, I, I might have said, um, be an art history major, you know, get get a PhD in art history, because uh, yeah, I certainly wouldn't want to do one now. But, you know, 30 years ago, um, that was at least possibly a, a place where you could still find some some professors that would give you some balance as opposed to every, everyone being on a particular side of a, a sociopolitical coin, if you will. Um, but anyway, so that that was enough uh, for the Sotheby's program. And uh, that was yeah, it was it was great. So between that and um, just keeping up with the sort of art and architecture and design market for the last 40 odd years, um, being a collector myself, knowing a lot of artists and architects and things. Um, it's yeah, it's I, I, I do not have, in a sense, a normal academic background i i have more of an art business background but on the other hand um i know what i'm talking about and i think that has been very helpful because most of the time when i'm writing about something i'm dealing with a museum or i'm dealing with a gallery and i understand what their motivations are um i i i, I know that they are interested in sales they're interested in, in visitor numbers that kind of thing i understand how the business side of things work uh, or works rather, and and I know how to to speak their language in a way that someone who maybe has a passing interest in art as a cultural phenomenon, but doesn't necessarily follow what's going on in the art world, may not be able to um, sort of speak the local language, if you will. And when I have discussions with a press office or or you know a gallery owner or an artist or something like that. Um, and they make reference to something. I know what they're talking about. I know exactly what they're talking about because I read on a daily basis. I probably read about 12 different art publications every day just to keep up with with what's going on in museum world, exhibition world, um, sales, discoveries, uh, conservation. It's a whole you know range of, of of issues that I find interesting. Well, it also gives you. You you both have the knowledge, but you're also you also have the advantage of not being, I guess, 
professionally enmeshed in that world so that you can bring then you can apply the knowledge in, in a bit more of a of an objective way you're not you're not swayed by by other interests i guess that's very true um in fact uh most uh, i i don't get to do a great deal of of public speaking i probably speak at a few events a year just because uh, this is again my 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 interest in in sort of art and in in a media sense is 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 more of a side project it's 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 not my job and so i have to devote as much time to it as i can in my spare time but um i usually have a few um speaking engagements during the year obviously because of covid those have all been canceled and i have however been contacted by a, a what I'll call a trade industry group, a rather prominent trade industry group in the art world, who are having their annual convention in, in in March, and they've invited me to be one of the one of the speakers. And I was pleasantly surprised that that they wanted me to to speak to them. And and when I asked why, the person from their board who had contacted me said, "We like the fact that in your writing you take a slightly irreverent view of the art world." <laughs> And, and, and I, yes, in fact, I do. And, and, and this was, this was something that I, I, I set out to do intentionally when, when I started uh, blogging and then subsequently moved over to the Federalist to, to write for them five years ago. Um, I, I don't, I don't ascribe to the view that everything that is, is published by one of the major art media outlets is the equivalent of, uh, the two tablets of stone on Sinai. It, it, it's it's an opinion. Uh, it's an opinion that is partially informed by by taste and also partially informed by uh, sort of socioeconomic factors that that are that are going on either either in the foreground or in the background. Um, but that you go. It, it doesn't mean that it can't be questioned uh, simply because something is the is the established view, if you will. Um, doesn't make it sacrosanct. And that is something that I hope that I do, at least to the extent as possible, in a, in a way that is not simply snarky. Um, I, I do try to write in a way that if I disagree with something, that I have a basis for why I disagree with it. Um, I may be, as a writer or as a speaker, I may at times make asides, if you will. I don't know whether that's because I'm Gen X or or, or what have you, um, but I do tend to have a slightly more jaundiced view, if you will, of the state of the art world right now. And I can because I know exactly what they're doing. As I said, I, I, I studied these people. <laughs> um, I, I studied alongside of them and and, and I know all the things that they're talking about. And unlike someone who, say, has a problem with a particular artist or a particular building or, or monument or what have you, um, who just instinctively doesn't like it. And that's perfectly that's perfectly valid for someone to instinctively not like something. Um, I actually have the tools, if you will, to be able to say, I know what this is. This is riffing off of something else which was done 12 years ago and so this isn't really new at all in fact it's just a rehash of something that this person did before for example or i don't understand why you know this particular work of art is getting so much attention it's garbage and here's why and it's not just because it's my personal opinion it's because uh, i i can look to sources 
that sort of inform why it is that I take that view. And while that may make while that may make some people unhappy at times, I will say that I've actually developed very good relationships over the years with a number of museums and galleries around around the country and, and abroad as well, um, who appreciate the fact that I'm not simply if I'm writing about a show um, or I'm writing about a particular piece or, or a building or, or what have you, I, I'm not simply rubber stamping what they expect. Um, I actually look into it. And if I have something that I feel I need to criticize, I do criticize it. I'm not afraid of doing that. And as you say, it's because I'm not beholden to these people. I, I, I don't work in the art world and it doesn't make any difference to me how well a particular gallery in New York does or how many people go to see a particular exhibition in Paris or, or, or what have you. Um, it's fine. That's, that's their business. But if they're putting something out there for the public to come view, well, I'm a member of the public and I happen to be an informed member of the public. So I have every right to, to say what I want. And, and if people want to read or, or listen to what I have to say, great. If they don't, well, then you know, fine, fine too. It's, it's, it's not my livelihood. Well, let's, let's flip around to, to that sort of member of the public, the member of the public who doesn't have uh, the background. I think a lot of people are drawn to art, but at the same time are intimidated by the art world. What, you know, how do I even how do I even approach this? I think is a lot is a question a lot of people, a lot of people ask. How can uh, a novice or a layman be more comfortable with uh, with the art world and and with art in general? I think the one of the best ways that people can start is and and I say this with the caveat that whether it is a book or a newspaper article or a um, magazine or, or blog post or podcast or whatever it is, um, take everything that the art world says with a big pinch of salt, because it is very difficult to think of another industry that takes itself so deadly seriously as the art world does. There is a lack of joy in a lot of what the art world does, at least in terms of, of modern and contemporary thought that is intentionally trying to put off people from being interested in it. This isn't a, a situation in which artists are interested in doing things that are popular and well-liked on a, on a broad basis. They're more interested in reaching elites or people who have similar <laughs> sociopolitical views as their own. Um, it's, it's a self-congratulation society. And if you know that, then you can wade into the waters somewhat better armed, if you will, for the battle that you may have to uh, find yourself in. I, I would say, though, that the example that I gave earlier of taking, you know, a general book, you know, the, the Germain Bazin, you know, History of World Sculpture, as my siblings and I did when we were little, not a book for children. Um, and and going through it and reading the descriptions and looking at the art and having discussions about it and so forth. Um, 
there are plenty of ways that you can do that. You can do that online, certainly. You can also do things like, again, I, I did this when I was little. Um, I had the sort of big fat catalogs, if you will, of the collections of the National Gallery and, and Metropolitan Museum of Art and the Prado and other things that I would sit and read. Um, most of them are, are obviously very well illustrated, but they also contain essays and uh, text on various subjects, could be on, on the art history, could be on the conservation, could be on the technique, could be on provenance, which is the word that's used to describe the chain of ownership of, of a particular object, how something got from point A to point B. Um, it was some of which are quite fascinating, actually. Um, there's, a, there's a Raphael Madonna that's in the National Gallery, which was acquired from the uh, Soviets when they needed to sell off some art in order to keep their people from starving. And they got it because I want to say Catherine, no, it's not Catherine the Great. I can't remember who it was. One of the czars somehow got it from the Duke of Alba in Spain and the Duke of Alba, I forget where he got it from. But anyway, the, the stories of the objects themselves are often very fascinating and if you're interested in history they are you know worth reading in and of themselves apart from the art but whatever sort of gets people interested i think the easiest way to start is by is by looking at a kind of a general publication like that whether it's just a general art history book or if it's a specific subject you know french impressionists um, italian renaissance whatever it is and becoming familiar with styles themes names and techniques and the more you become familiar with those things on in the comfort of your own home the more likely it is that the next time that you do get to go to a museum and see an exhibition or or um you know go to a gallery and see a show that you will recognize some of the things that are appearing there you'll recognize the influences of that particular artist you'll recognize the subject matter you'll recognize the way that they went about creating the work of art themselves and that is something that people can pick up and take down uh as 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 much as they want to if if it's you know it's covid we're not going anywhere so if you have a large art book like that that sort of gives you a certain layout again bearing in mind that that the author or the authors probably have a particular point of view with which you may or may not agree, you do at least become familiar with the terminology that is needed. And the more you see, the more you can develop your own both understanding and appreciation of these things. There are artists who, when I was in my teens, I could not stand, for example, that as I've gotten older, I've come to appreciate. And the reverse is also true. There, there are people that I admired when I was younger that now that I'm older, I, I look at them and say, Meh, I don't know if I like them so much anymore. You know, and, and we all have the same thing that happens with, say, film or, or music or literature. There are things which appeal to us at certain parts of our life, and then they don't appeal to us as much later, necessarily. Some things remain constant, other things don't. Um, but I think that the that's really for most people the best way to kind of you know get stuck in and 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 sort of understand at least in broad brush strokes what what they're looking at when they when they go to a museum and most reputable larger museums 
will have these kind of large catalogs that are available um, or you can always you know get them secondhand on, on online somewhere where you have to make the time because no one even if you go on a, on a on a guided tour there's only a limited amount of time in which the the docent can can sort of explain to you what it is that you're seeing um, but if you're willing to do the homework the information is out there um, it's it's amazing how much in fact you can learn online um, just from watching YouTube videos for example one of, one of my favorites is right now is is Baumgartner restoration out of Chicago um, and Julian Baumgartner you know every week puts out a, a, a podcast or, or excuse me a, 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 a video showing a, a painting or sculpture or drawing that that he's working on and sort of explaining the techniques were involved it's more of a science show even though it's art it's it's talking about the different solvents that are used the different pigments that are used and so on he's not really getting into the art history very much he's not really getting into the subject matter he's just strictly looking at the technical side and so for people who are interested in in the technical aspects of wow how did you do that um there is certainly a market for that if it's someone who wants to understand the development of a particular style there is a whole course online from the Yale School of Architecture that describes the the sort of origins and and uh, ultimate collapse of of Roman architecture and by Roman I mean ancient Roman so starting with Romulus and Remus and going up to the barbarians and you can learn all about that and, and it's not a sort of monolithic style it evolved and changed over time depending on the different emperors and what was going on culturally and so if you're interested in, in buildings you can you can look at that and that obviously buildings have to be decorated with paintings and sculpture and so that brings in things too i i, I think it really just depends on the individual and what they're interested in if you're a woodworker that's interested in furniture if you are uh you know someone who likes to to sew and is interested in in, in needlepoint or, or other kinds of textiles there are plenty of museums that are dedicated to that. You know, there's a textile museum right here in DC, for example. So it's not a question of, in a sense, how do you get into it? I think it's really a question of how much do you want to get into it? Because there is so much out there that while it's a good idea to have, as I said, a sort of general understanding of, of, of art history that you can get from a museum catalog or a general art history book, I think the real knowledge comes when you decide, okay, that's great. I, I can roughly know that that's a Monet and that's a Picasso and, and tell the difference between them. Um, but what do I like? Because at the end of the day, what you like is what is going to motivate you more than simply checking off a, a, a number of boxes to say, oh, I now understand everything that there is to know about you know, whoever, Maxim Gorky or something like that, when you don't actually like Gorky. Um, right. there, there's, there's no point in absorbing that knowledge if it's not something that you are particularly interested in. You know, I, I'm not enormously interested in, you know, most post-World War II art, but I can go into, you know, a modern art gallery like MoMA or something like that, and I can say, well, that's a Liechtenstein and that's a Warhol and, you know, that's a Jasper Johns and whatever, and I recognize what they are. But I'm not wasting time on them because they're crap, right? So if you you'll get no argument from me about that, yeah. And I and I'm I'm a little <laughs> inclined to Liechtenstein. I do think he's interesting, but he's kind of a one-trick pony. 
Um, so, so my, I guess my point is, is that once, once someone feels that they have a general grasp, and I, and I think it is important to have a general grasp because unfortunately the, the art education that most people get, whether it's in, um, junior high or in high school is, is not really that significant. Um, once people kind of have an understanding of, of how art has developed over the last, you know, two, three, four thousand years, um, they can recognize it in the field, if you will. but they at the same time have to be exposed to it and sort of in, in the sense of saying, I was not aware of this and I like this. And even for me, who, you know, again, people pay me to go look at exhibitions in museums and I think I've seen everything. Um, there are artists that I discover that I'd never heard of and did not know anything about because I will see that there is an exhibition of their work coming up at, at, at some gallery and I'll do my research before I get there and go look at it and say, ah, oh, I see where this fits in between that person and that person, or they're clearly looking back at this guy, you know, that, that, that there is a relationship there. Um, that to me is interesting. Those connections that, that people have through history, science, literature, philosophy, all, all of those kinds of things that, that there's a sort of continuous thread through through human culture. I, I personally find that fascinating. Um, that's that's definitely a big get for me. If you can get me into your show and say, for example, the, the Von Humboldt show that's going on right now at the American Art Museum here in D.C., um, you know, Von Humboldt was was sort of a naturalist and a philosopher, but the work that he did touched on all kinds of things, including art. And to go to an art museum and say, okay, I'm looking at his journals, I'm looking at portraits of the man, I'm looking at fossil specimens that he found, that kind of thing. But I'm also looking at paintings of friends of his, right? People that he knew, people that he had uh, correspondence with, you know, people who were, for example, um, going down to the Amazon and, and painting uh, pictures of the Amazon where he studied for a long time, or people who were going out into the West and studying the American Indians because he was fascinated by the American Indians and having correspondence with these artists that were doing these things. Um, it, it was, in a sense, an art exhibition about a scientist. And that sounds so counterintuitive in a way because what scientist creates art. And yet it's a perfect example of what I think a really great exhibition can do is to say, okay, you know these things, but now, we're going to throw this into the mix and you'll see how it all kind of fits together, right? People, people don't live and work in vacuums. They engage with all different kinds of people. Someone who is a baker may have a, you know, weekend job as a bass player in a bluegrass band, for example. And that's a whole nother world that if you just focused on this person's career as a, as a baker, you would never know that there's this whole other side to them. And, and we are multifaceted beings. So, for people who are, are interested in, in learning more about art, I'd say, you know, again, once you get some of the basics down, the, the, the world is your oyster. Um, you know, you, you pick what you like, you pick what you are drawn to, and you learn everything about it. And you will never learn, run out of stuff to learn because there are always new books coming out. There are always new shows. There are always new um, discoveries being made. Uh, relationships between things are being drawn. So I, I would say that while it doesn't help, as I said earlier, that much of the sort of art media world is designed to have an almost 
we versus them mentality, that doesn't mean you have to buy into it. Um, I, I don't know that Larry Gagosian is going to be inviting me over to dinner anytime soon. Hopefully not, because I'm sure his art collection is garbage. Um, but I know what he does and I know what he sells and I, and I understand um, what it is that, that he and his business are doing. Um, and I can have a conversation with him about that, right? Because I've, I've done my homework. If you're willing to do the homework, if you're willing to, to put in the, the, the time to listen, to, to look, to read, um, you, you can pretty much do anything you want in the art world. It's not as scary as I think a lot of times um, the, the so-called experts make it out to be. Yeah, I, I think there is a sense of of intimidation, though. But like you said, it's it's a matter of kind of welling up the courage to dive in. And I, let me throw in as well, because you mentioned uh, art catalogs. Uh, the Met uh, website has a tremendous archive of old catalogs of exhibitions available for free download on their on their website they're That's right. you know, these massive pdfs yes. uh, but but you can look at at dozens and dozens i don't know maybe hundreds of of exhibition catalogs uh going back decades just for free you don't own the physical copy but uh but they're they're done in a in a very high resolution uh, massive size PDF format, and they're yes. they're fun to, they're fun to look at because yes. some of those some of those catalogs can also uh, some of the rarer ones can also be fairly expensive. A lot of them are very accessible price wise on eBay and so forth. But um, but you also may want to look at something and not necessarily spend the money on it, uh, right. And just just to sort of uh, familiarize yourself with it. You're listening to the Cultural Debris Podcast. Let's talk a little bit then about, um, uh, you know, sort of an idea of how to familiarize yourself basically with art and maybe approach a, an exhibition. But a lot of times I'm personally of the opinion that that art is not something that is simply to be viewed in a museum. And I love to go uh, to exhibitions and I you have great access there in D.C., of course. We have um, we have the Cincinnati uh, Museum that's. Maybe hour and a half from here. That whenever they have a nice exhibit, I'll I'll make the trip up there, and it's a very nice regional museum. And if anybody's near Cincinnati, I would encourage them to uh, to check it out. But most of us have a good museum within within pretty good driving distance, I think. But I also believe that art's something that people ought to have in their homes. That just not, and I'm not simply talking about posters of Monet, which are, and I'm not, I'm not dragging that. It's just, uh, but having something that an artist created uh, in, in some way that you can, that you can appreciate that, that art is not something that's simply a museum piece. I think it's, it's good for people to live with art. And I have followed some of your acquisitions that you've shared uh, on, uh, on social media and so forth and written about. How uh, can someone be- begin to uh, to acquire art? Because it's not simply a, you know I don't have to have three million dollars to buy uh, to buy something at Sotheby's. I I can start with a with a much more modest budget. But but where do I go to do that? I I think one of the just just as with the 
museum catalogs that that you mentioned the auction houses most of them also have their um, old auction catalogs available online most of them um, they may they may also have uh, simply the results of, of pieces that were sold um, if not the entire catalog itself where where you can go and say okay how much does a signed lithograph by you know Marc Chagall go for for example and you can pull up that information and you can get a sense of of you know what you're looking at um, but but even even before that, though, I, I would say that the best advice for anybody that actually wants to have an original piece on um, hanging on the wall or standing on a, on a shelf is is it, it, it is to say, buy what you like, because you're the one who has to live with it. And one of the things that I think has ruined to some extent the 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 art market in recent years has been the rise of the art buyer um, who is convincing people with enormous amounts of money that particular artists or particular works are worth investing in, despite the fact that they carry an enormous price tag because they will hold their value and increase value over time. Um, maybe, maybe they won't, but that's not a reason in my view, to buy something. You should buy something because you love it. And whether that's dogs playing poker or it's, you know, the Salvador Mundi, if if you love seeing that when you come home from work and, you know, you throw your keys on the table and there it is hanging out, you know, hanging over the credenza, great, right? And, and But tell me why you love it. Because if you can't articulate that for me, you know, I love this because it reminds me of my grandfather. I love this because it reminds me of a place that I went on vacation once. I love this because it's, you know, carnations in a vase and carnations are my favorite flower. I, I love this because even though it's abstract, it's all this really intense color, you know, cobalt and, and I just it just really appeals to me. Okay, well, that's a perfectly valid reason to, to acquire something. Um, getting hung up on names and labels and so forth, there's no reason for a normal person to do that. You you need to buy something because it's something that you just look forward to seeing. You know, I, I recently bought not not one of the ones I put on Instagram, but on on uh, on when was it Friday? Yeah, Friday. I went to pick up uh, uh, a couple of pieces that I wanted at, at an auction up in Maryland. And while I was there, I happened to go into the consignment shop that they have attached to the auction house. It was just kind of wandering around and all the way in the back. I found this probably three foot by four foot landscape of, of Spain. And I collect a lot of uh, a lot of Spanish art. Um, and it was one of those paintings where. I couldn't I didn't know the artist. I mean, it's signed. I, I found out later. But I mean, when I looked at it, I. I I, I wanted to walk into it, if you know what I mean. I, I was just like, right. I can see myself beautifully painted, um, you know, village in, in Spain at sunrise. And I'm just like, I, I've been there. You know, like I, I may not have been to this particular village, but I've spent so much time in Spain that I immediately recognized what it was. And I asked the guy what he wanted for it. And I think I paid 75 bucks for it. Oh, um, nice. I, it is, and as, because I have a good eye, when I did the research, it's, you know, it's considerably more valuable than that, but I didn't buy it, if you will, as a flip. 
right? I didn't right. buy it as an investment. I bought it because I saw it and I fell in love with it. And I don't even know where I'm going to put it. But I have it sitting on a box in my spare bedroom right now that I sometimes have been going in there over the last several days to see it in different light, um, different times of day, daylight, evening, electric light, no electric light. Um, just to see the kind of light effects on the canvas. And I'm just so happy with it because I I look at it and I'm like, you know, COVID means I can't go to Spain on vacation like I normally do. But in a sense, I'm kind of there. Like I, I can smell it. I can feel it. I, I totally, the guy got it, you know, and even if it wasn't a valuable piece, I love it because it means something to me because it, it really touched me in a way that say a very well painted cityscape of of paris or something would not i mean paris is perfectly lovely but i don't have an emotional attachment to the place right um i i don't want to have pictures of new york hanging in my house because i hate going to new york you know i could never <laughs> live there if you paid me you know I, I go for work obviously but i mean i i don't you know get me out of here um i i used to spend weekends in new york and now when i go up to see a show I take the first train from DC in the morning and I take the last one in the afternoon to come back. I just don't stay over anymore. <laughs> um, but, but I guess what, what I'm trying to say is, is that, you know, if you will, it's not exactly an impulse buy, although it's something in that region. I think what you have to do is you have to look at something and say, I like it, right? That, that has to be the fundamental reason as to why you're buying something. Not because somebody else tells you it's important, not because you think that it's going to increase in value, not because it matches the drapes. You you buy it because you love it. And it's because it's something that you, it has meaning and, and, and brings you pleasure and, and joy in some way. And in a way, that goes back to the point that I made earlier, which is that so much of the art world now is so joyless, is so just serious and, you know, art, all in capital letters, right? Um, <clears throat> art is important. It's an important part of the human experience. It's something that, that can encapsulate in, in two or three dimensions, all kinds of things. It's an outlet for human creativity, <clears throat> but it's not the cure for cancer. I mean, th there needs to be a little bit of perspective. And so if there's something that you can buy that you, you know, have hanging at the foot of your bed so that you see it first thing when you make up in the morning and it makes you smile or it makes you, you know, be in a good mood that day or whatever it is, great. I'm not going to tell you that if that's a crying clown, that that's a good decision from a taste <laughs> perspective. But if that's what you like, then okay, you know, go ahead and, and do that if that's what makes you happy. But then know why, right? Don't, it, it, it has to be something, something that really speaks to you and that you, you, you understand, you get it, right? Um, right. that I think yeah, is probably I, the best advice for anybody. I, I think, I think it's a, a lot of times you were talking about, you know, whether it matches the drapes or not, it's sort of, we, we see sort of waiting room art or whatever, uh, that that's just commodified and sold because, uh, because it, it matches whatever or this, but this is what we're talking about is kind of transcending having it simply as a decor piece, but something that you actually connect with and desire for its own sake, that even yes. if you change the drapes, you still want to have that. Correct. Because it means, because it means something to you. I would, and, and along those lines, um, and, and yes, a lot of people think, 
you know, oh, you know, buying a buying a painting or buying a sculpture is, is is you know this major investment. No, it's not. I mean, it can be if if you want to go spend a hundred million dollars on a painting. There's plenty of people that are willing to you know sell you that. Um, but one thing that I think a lot of people need to think about is where do you go on vacation, or for that matter, where do you live? Do you really love where you live? Like like you know, for example, I I have very dear friends that live down in the Virginia Tidewater area that I go stay with. Um, usually one weekend a year, you know, lovely area down there, you know, Norfolk and Portsmouth and Smithfield and Williamsburg and, and, and all of that, you know, down the border with North Carolina. Um, lots of water, lots of marshes, all that kind of thing. Um, and I, I like the fact that in their home, they love where they live. Like they're both born and raised there, the couple, and, and, and they have pieces in their home that are of where they live because they really love that area, right? And they have pieces by local artists that that speak to them of, you know, this is this part of, of town or this is this historical thing or whatever it is. It's great. Right. Because it's, it's meaningful to them. And it doesn't matter if, you know, it matches the drapes or if it's, you know, whatever. It's it's something that that is both visually appealing to them and, and has some sense of meaning. And what and it's it's this is also along the lines of a, of a piece I'd written for the Federalist a few years ago about the 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 prevalence of of mid century modern furniture and and all interior design, which is right. you know, to the exclusion of everything else. Which is, um, you know, fashion is fine. Um, things come in and out of fashion all the time, and 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 that's great. But there is other stuff out there. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, everything doesn't have to be, you know, oh, now everything must be this color. or Oh, everything must be, you know, this style or, oh, I need art to match this. No, you don't. You need to have things that are meaningful. And if you can't find something that speaks to you on a on a deeper level, then I can't help you. You know, um, I, I don't know anybody that can help you. I, I, I know people who will help you up here, empty your wallet. Um, but but that's not what we're talking about. And so if, if you have, you know, if you have a place that you love to go on vacation and you happen to be there at a time when there is some sort of local fair or maybe it's a place where there's a local gallery, um, go buy something from there. You know, if you're somebody who likes to go out to, you know, the Southwest or something, I, I went to a wedding in Arizona a few years ago and, and I absolutely loved it. And, and unfortunately, I was fairly far out in the countryside. There were no galleries that I could go to. Um, but I'm looking, actively looking for a painting of the area that I stayed in because I just loved it. And I'd never been there before. And I I'd never thought I would ever go to Arizona. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Not on my bucket list. And I absolutely loved it. And I would love to go back and, and you know, maybe if I get a, a you know small painting of the place by a local artist, maybe I will. You know, uh, I, I don't know. But but it's something that's meaningful to me. And so uh, looking at a local artist, because most of us live in places where we have town fairs and Christmas markets and county, you know, festivals and all this kind of stuff. There's always somebody that's painting something or sculpting something or drawing something. Um, get it framed or put it on the shelf and just say, oh, this is this is a local piece and this is meaningful to me. You know, it's 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 representative of the place that I live or it's representative of a place where my family came from or, or a place that I went on vacation. Um, you know, a, a dog that that I used to own. You know, what, whatever it is, it's it's finding finding the personal meaning in art, 
I think is what makes it something that you want to have in your house. And, and you can appreciate something that is a great work of art in a museum or in a gallery and not necessarily want to have it hanging in your home. Right. Well, I yes, that's, that's absolutely true. My staircase, you know, it looks great in the Louvre, but I don't want it in my house. You know. I think that all of that points to a mindset uh, that I've always felt like your possessions, uh, whether it's art, books, which I have lots of lots of that, and just odds and ends that I've picked up, but but those things ought to really speak to you kind of about the story of your life, if you yeah. will, that, yeah. that, uh, this isn't something that I went to an interior decorator and said, here's my budget, make this room look good. Yes. But that, uh, when I'm in Arizona or when I, uh, a couple of years ago, you, you mentioned Paris a couple of years ago, I was in Paris and bought some street art from this artist in Montmartre. And I recently, got around to having it framed and I've, I've put it up uh, just hanging in the living room right now because there was already a nail there. So I just threw it up. Uh, but every time I look at it now, I'm, I'm glad that I have it. It, it brings yep. me joy and, and it reminds me of, of the time I was there. And, you know, I took a photo of her holding it up uh, before she rolled it up for me to, to take away. And so it, it's something that that speaks to me it's it's a perfectly pleasant uh piece it's it's never going to be in a museum but i like it yes. and and uh i i i expect to always like it yes and uh and it's but it's not something that i could get anywhere but right there at that moment right and Absolutely. and and so that's something that that i will always have with me and so i, I think that uh that sometimes uh our intimidation maybe about art is that we that we do get into kind of that museum mentality uh rather than how can i enjoy uh, this work that this person created and and in a way that that connects with me as well i think one of the the things that people forget um, and and this is mostly the fault of, of of what has happened to the art world in the last say century or so, is that before that, art was meant to be used. I Absolutely. mean, I know that sounds kind of strange, but but you know, if you've got Michelangelo painting your ceiling, you're not going to seal off the room, right? You're going to sure. have people oh. in there and show them around, right? And it's the same thing if you've got you know. Uh, uh, Raphael painting some, you know, panel paintings for the wall, or you've got Botticelli designing your floor. Like people are going to walk on it, and people are going to touch it, and people are going to, you know, look at all this stuff, right? It's it's not something that you sort of encase in 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 plastic and then say nobody touch it, right? Most of art throughout history <clears throat> was stuff that was designed to be used in some way. It's only within the last century or so that we've developed this attitude of, ooh, we have to stay as far away from this as possible, almost as a secular religion, if you will, right? We must come and, and, and bow the knee to, to, you know, Paul Clay or something. Um, and that's fine for, for, you know, people who don't have anything better to do with their lives. But, you know, as a, as a, as a Christian, I, I only bow my knee to one person and it's, you know, it's not Picasso. So I, I, I take the view that, 
Um, it is it is loving what you have. It's the joy of what you have. It's also not being afraid of old things, because I think sometimes yes. that happens to a lot of people. And I will give you a perfectly good example of that. Um, I know someone who collects old book engravings of favorite authors. Um, mm-hmm. Not expensive things at all, just, you know, books that fell apart and old, as you may know, old uh, 19th century, early 20th century books, a lot of times had very nice, uh, you know, engravings put into them um, to say on the frontispiece to illustrate, you know, here's a picture of Homer, right. here's sure. a picture of yes. Balzac or whoever it is, right? Before photography became the way that that, that books were illustrated, right? And these things are, are little works of art in themselves because they were printed by you know, uh, someone who knew that they were doing in terms of lithography, right? Um, and so he goes around and saying, you know, oh, I need a picture of, you know, Dickens or whatever it is. And he finds one on eBay for five bucks or something like that. And it's an image that he likes. And then he goes and gets it framed, maybe, you know, depending on how much you, you know, framing can be a lot of times more expensive than the art. Uh, yeah, it absolutely can. Yes, <laughs> I, can, I can, I can, I can affirm. Yes. Uh, and, and, but that's, but you know what? And then you go into his, his, uh, his study and his house and all around almost, you know, almost like a border around the top of the, the room. He's got all these, you know, small little eight by 10 framed pictures of, of all of his, you know, sort of favorite fiction and nonfiction, you know, writers, um, cost next to nothing to do that, but it looks great. And again, it's meaningful to him. You know, he's a, he's a, he's a writer and a professor and he loves having all of these things up. And I think that's great. You know, I mean, it's 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 something that he latched onto as saying this is a way that I can acquire works of art that are affordable, that are meaningful to me, and that it's better than going to, you know, some mega home store and buying a bunch of crap that's made in China um, and then putting it up, up on the wall because this is what they're pushing this month. You know, right. Um, right. And the, no the thing. And I have I have some some engravings like that, you know, uh, like Edmund Burke and John Randolph and people mm-hmm. like that. Uh, the thing that I kind of latched on to several years ago, they, they were things that I had always admired, but never really understood what they were, were uh, 19th century Vanity Fair uh, caricatures. Yes. And uh, so once I finally delved in and kind of figured figured them out. I started buying them and I yep. have, well, a, a lot now. <laughs> I have, <laughs> I, I have dozens of them around the house yeah. and, uh, and more. And, and one of the nice things about them is you can often purchase them already framed that somebody yes. did that for you. And you can, you can buy them, uh, if you're, if, if you keep your eye out for a relatively inexpensive amount, they're very nice lithographs. Yeah. They're funny. They're historical. They, they, they appeal to me on a, on a number of, of different levels. And so that's, that's been a very accessible uh, and mostly unique. I mean, most, most people don't have those around. Right. Uh, not that, not that that matters uh, is neither here nor there really, but it's something that, uh, that kind of expresses my own personality and interest. And I, and I like them. And so that's just, there are other things that I, I pick up here and there, but that's something that I probably have the most of, but it's, it's very, anybody could buy one. You can buy one on eBay for, you know, depending on who it is, because there are literally thousands of them that they produced in the, in the 19th century, but uh, you can pick one up for 10 or $20 and then ha- and have it framed. And sometimes you can pick one up for $30 already framed and have, right. it, have them shipped it to you. And, yeah. and, and you have something 
you have something unique that's very lovely and, and and that you like you said it's not crap from china right that's uh you know what whatever the decorating the decorating trend of the day is right Nor and, and really communist regime which is always uh, well <laughs> absolutely <laughs> uh and, and if and if i can get people uh if i can get anything out of this podcast to get people to kind of embrace that kind of thing i feel like that i've i i have made uh some progress with that because i i believe that uh, that people do that people do get intimidated and that they settle for things when they could have so much more for not necessarily more money and uh right. and enjoy themselves right and and one of the things that is um worth worth pointing out i think is the fact that um, there is so much great stuff out there that because of the society in which we live at the moment um, is dramatically undervalued. Um, mm-hmm. And whether you're talking about colonial furniture or, you know, Chinese export porcelain or, you know, whatever it is, people people want sort of space age looky things or, or postmodern looky things. And that's fine. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's fine to appreciate some of those things. Again, it's, it's the, to the exclusion of everything else that I have a problem with. Um, but, but there are so many things out there that I think people are intimidated by because they've been trained to think, as I said earlier, that these things must be in in sort of plastic cases and they can't be touched, right? Um, right. Anything that is really, really, really important, you know, a Duncan Fife side table or something like that, that's already in a museum. So if sure. you find something that is that is old and lovely and has a history to it, um, and you can get it for a couple of hundred bucks, you know, some corner cabinet or something like that, because you know it's well. You know, this is Greek revival and nobody wants Greek revival anymore, right? Well, it's probably better made than anything that you could get at a furniture store today. Um, and it's all going to be, you know, sort of hand done and, and have all these lovely details and quirks about it. And as you said earlier, it's going to be something that's fairly unique. Um, and it's yours, right? It's something that you're like, oh, I love the stain on that thing. I really like the tone of it. And I, I would just enjoy using that as my, you know, bar cabinet or whatever it is. Um, fine. Right. That's, it's, it's something that speaks to you. It's something that makes you, that makes you happy. Um, and we're not talking about, you know, the type of purchases that, that would put you out of house and home either. You know, there, there are people who go into art and, and, antiquities and all that kind of stuff for speculation um fine but that's you know that's just like stock market gambling you could win big you could lose big um i I, that's i don't think that's what we're talking about i think what we're talking about is finding meaning on a personal level um for things that bring you joy that reaffirm who you are uh, and what your what your values and interests are and if that happens to be um whatever you know paintings of horses um botanical studies of of rare plants um sculptures you know made out of uh, 
you know, coal from mining districts, right? Because you had a you know, great grandfather who was a coal miner and that kind of speaks to you. You know, there's, there's all kinds of, you know, human ingenuity out there making all kinds of really interesting things. And, and building a collection involves sort of having the courage of your own convictions to say, I like this, this is meaningful to me. Um, and, and again, to be able to, to articulate it, whether or not it would ever be in a museum is not the point. The, the point is, is that it's something that you have around you and that it and that it, it, it sort of makes you glad to be where you are. I, I think ultimately that's that's what you have to go with anytime you're buying any kind of work of art. I think you're right. And on that note, we'll wind things down. Uh, William, if you don't mind telling folks where they can find your work, you're at The Federalist and also uh, maybe your your social media accounts. Yes. So um, if you can find me on uh, Twitter, Instagram, uh, and my own site uh, at W, B as in boy, D as in dog, Newton, N-E-W-T-O-N. And if you put a .com on the end of that, then that will take you to my website. And that has links to my social media as well as to um, some previous uh, sort of talks and things that I've uh, given before. And also if people want to get in touch with me, ask me any kind of questions, there's a contact form there that you can do that as well. Oh, very good. Well, thank you very much for being on because the, I, I think this is really helpful for a lot of folks and I hope that we can prod them into making some some meaningful purchases for themselves. Absolutely. And hopefully that they will um, not be afraid to go to a museum exhibition. Don't be afraid, guys. It's not going to That's right. You. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That, and thanks I won't for yell at you. On, Alan. I've really enjoyed uh, being on the show. Well, thank, thanks for being on. Thank you.